Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome back to another episode of Chasing Tales Outdoors. I am Walter. I'm your host, and I am joined from just across the the street. Chase Prince, dude, how are you? Is that is that better uh, than uh, my across, across the, the, the state thing? <laughs> much, much better, much better, much better. Okay, We're practically neighbors. <laughs> I'll be over for a cup of sugar later. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> I probably probably a pound of ground ground venison if my season keeps up like this. <laughs> <laughs> Just help yourself to the freezer. <laughs> it's it. That's it. Well, how are you, dude? You doing good tonight? Oh, but dude, I'm doing great. Um, we just knocked out what I what I consider will be a, a great podcast for yeah. the listeners. Um, I just found out some information as of yesterday that I won a Mossberg 6.5 Creedmoor rifle. Um, from from the competition that I was in, so that was some great news uh, that I got a hold of. Um, season's done down here, but um, I'm still planning on coming up and hunting with you, which is going to be great here in about what ten days, maybe ten days, yeah. So yeah. looking forward to that, man. So yeah. that's uh, that's that's all I got going on right now. Just just so that doesn't slip past the listeners, Chase not only won the archery contest and his local sporting goods store he also won the rifle contest so he's won a bow and a rifle uh and 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 hundreds of inches of, of florida white to the chair <laughs> this is the kind of year that 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 literally uh makes the ballads of history you know it, it every year is going to be dis- a disappointment for you moving forward dude 
Uh, pretty much. I mean, I also uh, <laughs> throw out there, I want a free mount too. So, Oh, that's <laughs> I mean, right. You want a free mount. It's just been the, the year that I'll be able to look back on when I get when I'm become an old man and be like, hey, yeah. 2019, man, 2019. <laughs> when, when your kids are looking back on the historical harvest data that started this year, they're going to see a spike in the buck kill. And they'll be like, well, I wonder what caused that. And you can look at them and say, that's the Prince Effect, boys. <laughs> yeah, the Prince Effect, 2019. <laughs> so look it up that's thing. it that's it nah man it was well, yeah I, like i said it was a great year um I'm, I'm thankful for everything that i got and just uh like i said it'd be one of those things that i'll, I'll remember forever and hopefully i'll be i'll be able to continually um at least uh not necessarily win the items that i want but just just to keep getting after the deer and having the same sort of success. I know it's not going to happen every year, but I'm going to try my hardest. That's it. That's it. Well, this episode that they've got the pleasure of listening to tonight runs for over an hour and a half. So I think we need to, in typical fashion, keep this intro short and let them get on to what I think, as you said, is a really good episode. It's a great episode. I think people are really going to take away some awesome stuff. And if you've been on the lookout for Southern hunting content, this is an episode for you. I know that's something people have been clamoring for, uh, but I honestly think even if you hunt up north, the stuff's still going to be very relevant. Um, so let's thank the people who make this possible, and that starts with Tethered. They are the title sponsor of this podcast. You know that Chase and I run saddles every opportunity we get, unless there's just not a tree to hang from, in which case we're probably sitting from our saddle on the ground or something of that nature. But they just dropped the Phantom, and if you haven't seen this thing, you owe it to yourself to go to YouTube, go to the Tethered page, and look at the new Phantom from Tethered. This thing answers all of the concerns and the feedback that they were given over the span of a year. They have put it into action and addressed all of it. So check it out, tetherednation.com, and if you order a saddle, let them know we, we sent you their way so that they know that uh, we're supporting them as much as they support this show. In addition to that, we couldn't do this show if it's not for our Patreon subscribers. Thank you for continuing to support this show, continuing to invest in us so that we can you know, travel and, and hunt and document on film our adventures every year. We are just honored that you would decide to support us monthly. And if you're listening to this for the first time and you're thinking, what is Patreon? If you go to patreon.com forward slash Chasing Tales Outdoors, the link's in the show notes below, so just scroll down. You can go and visit our website, and this uh, site is where you can just contribute on a monthly basis, two, five, ten dollars and that money goes straight to the production of the show. Chase and I don't make any money. The operating ex- expenses outweigh out, uh, what we bring in off Patreon, so you don't have any concern of that, but it allows us to expand what we're doing to bring you new and exciting content like my doe hunt this year. Next year, Chase is going to have a camera with him documenting all of his adventures so it's going to be a great time and i hope that you would consider joining patreon and if you really just you're just on the edge of your seat and you're thinking about it keep in mind we do quarterly giveaways and we've got some really good stuff coming up for the spring so check it out in the show notes below chasing tales outdoors patreon and please consider subscribing if you listen week to week it would mean the world to us and it'll allow us to continue to grow the show i think with that dude let's let him get onto the podcast let's do it all right. Well, we have got Locke Wheeler on the phone. If you don't know who Locke is, you really need to figure it out. Go find him. Stalk him on Facebook. I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't don't stalk him on Facebook. But <laughs> he is the host of the Strutcast podcast. 
He is the co-host of the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast. The dude does it all, and he gets it done from the south all the way up to the Midwest. Dude, I appreciate you taking the time out your evening. From what I was told, you have just left the woods, and you were flying to find cell service to, to be on the show tonight. How's that going on? I was fortunate enough, uh, fortunate enough to have a dentist appointment today, and I guess unfortunate enough to have a dentist appointment today. But um, that allowed me to just kind of take the day and make a morning and an afternoon hunt around my appointment. So, yeah, I was trying to get out of the woods. It's it's actually uh, it's staying daylight, maybe an extra fifteen minutes or so from over the last week or two, and that kind of took me by surprise. I was sitting over a food plot this afternoon, and you know it was. It's getting to the time where I'm, I'm deciding to get down, and I'm, I'm thinking it's 5.30. I look down, and it's 5.50. And I'm like, oh, crap, I got to get on the road. And uh, I got to get a, a few miles from camp, you know, to get where I've got steady cell service. So, yeah, it's a little bit of a hustle. Well, I can tell you this. Uh, neither one of us are going to hold it against you if you were uh, cutting it close because of a hunt. Uh, supper or something, we might hold it against you. But if you're out there chasing, yeah. chasing something, we'll, we'll give it a pass. I figured you'd be okay with it. I have, I can say that I have uh, twice now uh, had to reschedule podcasts because I was either blood tracking a deer for a buddy or or dragging my own deer out of the woods. So that thought thought crossed my mind this afternoon. I thought, well, if I shoot a deer, chances of me getting out of here by six thirty, not good. (laughs) Well, that's why you passed up on that one forty you were telling us about, right? That was just just for the show. It's all. It's all for you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I had the pleasure of meeting you at the Birmingham Deer Expo. Um, well, was that last July? Yeah, this yeah. past summer. And you, you and I have have maintained in touch, kept up, and we chat off and on throughout the year. And man, it just seems like you've got a real good pulse on 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 hunting in your area, and it's a it's a part of the country that we don't talk too much about. And and I, I aim to correct that tonight, but. Before we go down that path and we start digging into some of the details, why don't you kind of uh, educate our listeners as to who you are and, and tell them how you got into hunting. Okay, well, I um, first of all, I'm, I was born and raised in Natchez, Mississippi, which if you're looking at a map, the little southwestern kind of corner where it corners into Louisiana and makes the Louisiana boot, you know, right there in that in that little corner. And uh, I grew up in a in an area where, deer hunting was very popular and it was really good and so uh my dad started taking me deer hunting when i was too young to go honestly you know he would take me even when i could only stand to be there in the woods for you know for short periods of time and so you know deer hunting has been deer hunting and deer camp has been a part of my life you know since i was you know four or five years old and 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 even younger watching my dad go so uh, you know, I've had that question before about how'd you get into it, and I, I, I was born I was born into it. That's how I got into it. I don't know any other way. And uh, I, another a kind of a cool thing, of, I guess, about where I was born is uh, Cuz Strickland, the the VP at Mossy Oak, was my neighbor. He lived about three oh, doors wow. down, and his oldest daughter actually drove me to school after my sister graduated. I, I rode to and from school with her for a while, and. Um, all that to say, you know, the Primos and Mossy Oak kind of revolution and, and, uh, industry side of deer hunting as it, it, as it kind of matured and grew up, I grew up in that when I was a kid. And when I was a teenager was when they started doing the monster bucks and truth about hunting, 
uh, DVDs or well, they weren't DVDs back then they were VCR tapes, but you know, that all got started in the Dan Fitzgerald series and, and, um, you know, this hunting on TV and, uh, I guess just the, the media side of the outdoor industry kind of, I grew up in it right before my eyes. And, uh, so, you know, it's just part of who I am. As like I said, I, the only way, I, the best way that I can explain is I was born into it. That's awesome, man. That, there, there's, there are, that's becoming more and more seldom. It seems like as I talk to people, you know, don't get me wrong. A lot of people are introduced at a young age, but it seems like it's something that people kind of come into later and later as time goes on. But I kind of, I kind of was similarly introduced. I spent most of my younger years over in Louisiana and most of that time was spent fishing. We didn't do a lot of hunting, but we did a lot of brim fishing and, and cat fishing and stuff like that. And then we moved to Southeast Georgia and I got fully immersed into to small game, to, to white tails and then eventually duck and upland. So I'm curious, where does your passion lie? If you, you know, if you were forced to do one thing in the outdoors every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? It's, it's really hard, but my my answer to that question has always been turkey hunting and it probably always will but but bow hunting big whitetail bucks is is so closely behind i hope i never have to make that decision <laughs> but but I, i'm gonna say turkey hunting okay interesting that's and that's another thing is for me it, you know what you said is up until i i guess like college age where i you know kind of went off and started meeting new people and, and my whole world expanded outside of the little community that i was raised in i i, I did it to meet someone who didn't hunt was odd and then right. as an adult as an adult i've i've kind of found what you found where you know i meet a lot of people that are getting into hunting as an adult and that's that's foreign to me it's not foreign to me anymore but it was because like i said growing up everybody hunted every right. single boy in my class in school growing up went deer hunting on the weekends every single one of us you know and so uh and then turkey hunting that's another thing that for me i grew up hunting on a really big hunting lease with my granddad and my dad and it was thirteen thousand acres that bordered <laughs> a wildlife management area that is probably i don't want i don't know it's 20 or thirty thousand on one side and the other side was the home of national forest which is i don't know it's it's a third of the state of mississippi it seems like <laughs> and so back then there wasn't as much timber management it was big hardwoods and there was turkeys everywhere and people ask me all the time you you mentioned i'm the host of strutcast and i've done a lot in the turkey hunting world you know my whole life and i you know my dad didn't turkey hunt when i was a kid i, I saw turkey hunting going on all around me and i wanted to do it my dad liked to go to the camp so when i was old enough to be responsible with a shotgun you know, he gave me a turkey call, and he'd stay around the camp and just say, go have at it. And I was fortunate enough that I was able to just roam this endless expanse of, and I, I could mess up a hundred times and still find a turkey goblin because they were everywhere. You know, so. Uh, I'm jealous. <laughs> yeah, well, it, no, I'm jealous too because I can't relive those days. It's not like that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I wish there was a way people could tell you you're in the good old days before you're out of them and looking back at them, uh, right? I mean, that's just absolutely no doubt about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I think I'd be upset with you if you grew up uh, being neighbors with Cuz Strickland and you didn't get into turkey hunting. Yeah, 
that and that's really what it was is like i said my dad was a big bass fisherman and we always had a boat and he fished in the local bass clubs and we bass fished a lot but uh, you know as you, you guys well know springtime is is bass fishing you oh, know yeah. and uh and and all the little local tournaments and stuff that he did and so turkey hunting was just not anything that he ever really did and when he was a kid there wasn't a lot of turkeys kind of the explosion of the turkey population happened between his generation and mine and uh but like you said with with primos and the mossy oak guys you know kind of coming of age right there in front of me turkey hunting was put on display and and i thought man that looks like a lot of fun and my friends were starting to do it a little bit and i thought you know that 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 looks like a lot of fun i want to try that you know so i you know just off i went i was just fortunate enough to to have the kind of access to the kind of property that allowed me to kind of figure it out on the fly and and i'm a better turkey hunter today because of it because uh you know i i had to learn it myself and it it was you know trial by fire and trial by error and everything else so chase that's a lot like pretty much your whole hunting experience (laughs) uh yeah yeah for the most part but i I didn't like i said i didn't start as a, a kid i didn't grow up hunting i didn't start hunting until i was Oh, 21 years old is when I started hunting. So, but it was kind of the same type things. I would go out on my own and uh, figure things out. I think that's probably a good way for people to get out there. And because like I said, you don't get used to uh, like other people, how they hunt and get stuck in a rut. You kind of just go out and experience things and do things on your own. And I think that kind of helps make you the hunter that you are as opposed to just kind of trying to mirror somebody else's stuff. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, and and it, and I think you can take that even a step further because I know for me, my maturation as a deer hunter, speaking specifically of deer hunting, I don't hunt the same way that I grew up hunting, you know, at all now. And and not just because I choose to hunt for big deer and because I choose to hunt with a bow and all that. It's it's different now. And I, you know, I had a good foundation, but a lot of what you're talking about you know the things that i do today are are learned experiences they're not something i read in a book and they're not something that it there's parts of that that i learned somehow somebody showed me or i read something but you know it's it's all about you never really stop learning i know the major league bow hunter guys on tv they had that 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 tagline with their show was never stop learning but it's very very true because as soon as you think you got it figured out you don't you know it's something major curveball is going to come your way yeah, no doubt. Like I said, I think there's a, a good like little baseline that you should have. And then after that, it's kind of there's ways that I've started hunting that I know people that kind of taught me how to hunt or was like trying to show me how to hunt. They still kind of they go sit in stands like that's all they go sit in a lot of the same stands all the time. And that's how they hunt. And it didn't take me long to kind of figure out uh, um, to kind of be mobile and to try different tactics to be able to have more success than what they were having in the woods. Yeah. I So I'm curious, Locke, you know, obviously we're going to throw out a, a plug to Cuz here, but who do you think, it, it's interesting, you kind of grew up in that old guard, I think, not that you're old, I'm not saying that, but like you grew up with that old guard uh, way of hunting, and it sounds like you kind of pulled away from that. But who who did you look up to uh, when you were growing up? Who Who were the people that – uh you just you couldn't quit oh man the word just left me here who are the people that you following. just yeah following thank you idolize <laughs> idolize yeah. it. um the primos crew mostly um and you know those guys 
with Will Primos and and there was a guy that was on there for a long time named Will Walker who was from best I could tell was really just a guy that hunted with them. He wasn't, I don't think he actually worked for the company. He just, just hunted with them a lot. And those guys. And, and, um, as I got older, I, more college age, the bone, not, it wasn't bone collector. It was real tree road trips with Michael mm-hmm. Waddell. Um, I started watching them. And another thing that kind of, I guess has been a big part of, of me is, um, I got good friends that hunt the same way I do. And as crazy as it is to say, you know, my dad and my grandfather and some of their dads and my best friend is John Dudley's first cousin. So I've known Dudley (laughs) since before he was Dudley. And, um, you know, when he was, he's a little older than us, but, um, I can remember him coming and hunting with my buddy and, and I hunted there with him some too. And, and then, you know, we're not close friends or anything, but, um, you know, I know him. And, and, and so I obviously followed along with his rise through archery. And then when he started doing knock on and the things that he was doing with bow hunting, um, was always really impressive to me. And, and he hunted a lot of the way he hunted was, um, the way we hunted. And he learned it from my buddy's dad, who was one of the guys that I've always looked up to as a hunter. So, you know, that, that's some of, of what it was, but you know, as far as, as following the media, like I said, I Primos, they were Mississippi boys. I was a Mississippi boy. They, hunt, you know, when I watched their videos, they hunted in places that I was familiar with that were right down the road. They hunted in the same way that I did. And, and so I guess I would have to say them more than anything. I could see that. I could see that. I, the Primos definitely was like a relatable thing because when I was hunting in the swamps of the Southeast, it just, that was the areas you saw them, them hunting and the, the, then when they were chasing turkeys, it, it just looked like the areas, uh, that, that I was hunting and just, they always had like a real, they always maintained a, a, a hunting camp feel to the show. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah, it always, it never felt like a production. It always genuinely felt like they just wanted to capture where they were at and, there was another show for me, and I can't remember its name, but it was a father-son crew from, like, PA or something like that. They had these big beards back before di- – I mean, this is, like, in the 90s. And um, they shot anything that walked. And, and, and That was they, the Fitzgerald. That was Dan Fitzgerald. That's who it was. That's yeah, it. Fitzgerald's. Yep. Oh, yeah. And, and I oh, worshipped yeah. the ground they walked on because a lot of their show was – like, they showed you how to blood track, you know? Like yeah. – Here's how, you, you know, this deer crossed the water right here, and this is how you can tell. And, and it was just like, it was such an educational feat that I, I just, I felt like I walked away knowing how to be a woodsman afterwards. Oh, my dad was, my dad was enamored with Dan Fitzgerald. And we had every one of their, their productions, their VCR tapes. And uh, we watched, <laughs> we watched those things religiously. Yeah, my dad was, a, we even had the, I don't know if you remember, he had the Vanilla Killer. Oh, yeah. It was the, the vanilla cover scent slash attractant. My yeah. dad bought that stuff and everything. We, we were. Oh, I remember that. And then he had, uh, was he Deer Dander too, right? That was that was him. Um, Maybe so. I, I don't I remember. I think so. He had several products like that. I, I don't remember. Yeah, sure. yeah. Oh, I just pulled them up online. So you can get it in a, in a, in a combo pack. You can get three of the Deer Dander and two of the VK Vanilla Killer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. Oh, man. It's funny I look back at some of those videos now, and Dan Fitzgerald being one of them, 
specifically. You know, we would watch those videos and they would shoot these deer that we were just like, that's amazing, you know, what they're able to do on yeah. video. And and looking back now, like, people don't even shoot those deer on camera anymore. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, hey, that's just, I guess, everything Everything has a cycle. Everything matures yeah. in its own way. It does. It does. I think... I think people would be, especially if you're a new hunter listening to this episode, I, I heavily encourage you to go and find the Team Fitzgerald uh, YouTube channel. It's still a thing. Uh, they're still posting to it uh, somewhat somewhat actively. If you want to go and learn how to hunt, like tracking, woodsmanship skills, that's one of the better places you could go and, and really, like, it, it, would, it would be relatable to you, especially pair that with some of that old, you know, Primos TV. I mean, that's... That's oh, yeah. that's good stuff right there, man. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> there, yeah, that's man. That's taking me back. I don't. I, I might be <laughs> aging myself a little bit here if I'm not careful. But, <laughs> well, dude. So, I'm curious. Hunting in your region is an area that is seldom talked about, and I'm I'm curious. What is your outlook? Because a lot of people can be sour about the places they hunt because they're not Kentucky. They're not, you know, Missouri or Iowa. The Mississippi yeah. River area, that's kind of where you hunt, correct? Yeah, I, I do. I actually live in Louisiana now. I live about, I live north of Baton Rouge, but about 15 miles south of the Mississippi border and uh, not far from my hometown. But uh, so I hunt both Louisiana and Mississippi. And, you know, my outlook on things is, is really not that. I'm, I actually feel very blessed to have grown up in this area as a hunter because we have such good hunting. Now I do go off and, and I hunt in the Midwest and Kansas and Missouri and Nebraska and different places every year. And it's a different hunt. And I'll be the first to admit that, but you know, in another way, what we have in the South, I tell people all the time that, that ask me about hunting in the Midwest. You know, I, I find myself in this conversation with people that have not been, that they've seen it on TV and they've heard about all these people that go to the Midwest. And and these are people that hunt a lot back home. Let me preface that with these are, you know, experienced hunters back home. You know, well, what's it about? Because they have this notion that, well, there's just all these deer. They're everywhere. They're just running around everywhere. And that's really not true. We actually have more deer here than they do there. It's just that we have, you know, thousands upon thousands of acres of contiguous forest and and thickets and cutovers and hardwoods and pines and everything in between and you go up there and you're hunting a thousand acre farm and only 250 of its woods the rest of it's a field right you know and so that yeah i mean they grow some really big deer and they have a lot of deer per square acre i guess or per wooded acre but you know just as an example i hunted today on my a little 50 acre piece of property that my my parents own and you know i i spend a lot of time there managing it as much as i do hunting it and on that 50 acres i don't have as many big deer as i do on a farm in the midwest but i have way more deer than a than a 50 acre block of woods up there way more you know i throughout the course of a year i'll have 20 to 25 different rack bucks on that property and and a dozen of them pretty much regularly every day almost and up there you know they may have three or four mature deer on a farm and some some younger bucks and a herd of does and you know the smoke and mirrors is 
if you go there at the right time and you sit there in that one block of woods where they're traveling and it's a rut, they're eventually going to walk by you. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you hunt down here and how many different places can they walk? They can go somewhere different every day. Right. Um, so, and that's kind of the challenge is, you know, and I don't mean to say that people in the South can't pattern deer because obviously you can, people do it all the time, but, um, it's a lot different. So before people get this, you, you know, you ask about the outlook and, and I think it's a totally different hunt, but you know, I love hunting in, in, in the South. And the other thing about the Mississippi river bottom is it's really hard to, to have access to the right property, but river bottom property produces some of the biggest deer in the country. Right. You know, we kill oh, yeah. deer, we kill deer along the Mississippi river that are, big heavy horn 150 160 class deer all the time and you know everybody i, I have a i kind of have this thing that i always say to people um everybody goes up to the midwest especially first time guys that have hunted and had success and they're going to kill a trophy i'm gonna kill a 150 that's what they say i'm looking for a 150 and I say, yeah, until the first Midwest 140 comes chasing up by you. <laughs> because you don't realize how big a 140-inch yeah. whitetail is, especially sitting on a 250-pound body. Yeah. It, it's a big deer. So <laughs> the, the, the thing is, yeah, they kill some of the biggest deer in the country in the Midwest, but the average hunter in the Midwest is killing deer between 135 and 145. We kill deer like that in the Mississippi River Bottom all the time. So we kind of have the best of both worlds. We have, uh, in the south, we have the large tracts of public land and the big leases that have high high deer numbers and then you have the river bottom where you also have really high deer numbers but you grow really big deer just the soil quality um grows really big bodied and really big antler deer so we have both and uh you know i am you know i i, I thank my lucky stars to, to have been raised here and learn to hunt here and get to hunt here because we have some of the best hunting in america i hear you man that's that's so what it, it paired with big deer which in the south uh, paired with an abundance of big deer i should say which in the south can be kind of hit or miss you know where i'm at it's kind of hard to come on deer like that where chase is at they're around every tree as he's proven this year but what is your season like there how 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 long is your season and what are your what are your bag limits like well interesting that you asked that question because when I finished the last statement I made, I was kind of thinking something along those lines I should have added to it. Another thing is we start October the 1st and our season goes until January the 31st. And uh, that's Louisiana and Mississippi. And then there are parts of the river bottom in Louisiana anyway. And I think there's some areas in really Southern Mississippi, maybe Gulf south mississippi i'm not sure that actually have an extended archery into like february the 15th so that that's the other thing in, in mentioning you know where i live it's, you know i mean you you live in missouri or or kansas or nebraska not only do you only get one tag in some states or two tags but you know i mean for all intents and purposes somewhere between thanksgiving and christmas it's over right you know it goes from you may you you might hunt that early September that mid September early season, but let's just say mid September to basically the fir first week or two of December and it's over. And for us, we get a whole another month and a half. 
of deer hunting plus we have much higher bag limits and so to me i you know as a hunter we we kind of had this conversation on the louisiana bow hunter podcast not long ago it's like i don't want to take more than my fair share but you know this mentality we were talking about midwestern hunters and this mentality of well i got my deer that was a good season i, I don't know how i would be if that was the case <laughs> you know like oh, I, yeah. I, I stress every year like man if i shoot another one i gotta find somewhere else to hunt because <laughs> that's all i really need to shoot off of this property or you know whatever so yeah that's true i i've, I've said that same thing to walter many a times of it's like i don't what what would i do after i filled my one buck tag because i'm so used to the liberal bag limits <laughs> here in florida and the the amount of time that you can hunt i mean you're talking about the second week of september through mid-january just for my region but you can extend it out if you go to south florida you can start hunting in like late July, yep. early August, and all the way out to the Panhandle. Shoot, some of their season stuff ends in like the first week of March. So, I mean, you, you've got a it's a super long season, and now we, I mean, we've got buck tags, but I mean, it's five compared to where it's like one in Kansas, uh, in, in some of these other states where you get one deer. So, I'm like, I don't know what I would do with my time because I mean, I'd literally <laughs> hunt the whole season. <laughs> uh, I like I said, I'd have to travel to other states. I agree. I, 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 my wife asked me the other day, actually, not that she didn't know the answer. It might've been rhetorical, but I answered her anyway. <laughs> um, cause that's just kind of guy I am. Uh, <laughs> she said I, w- I was going hunting. I'm like, look, I'm going hunting or I don't remember what the situation was. The story behind this is I killed a deer. And if you follow me on Facebook, if you, the, the video is, is on Scree's YouTube channel, I killed a deer. I have 400 acres behind my house in Louisiana that I lease. And I've had at least for four years. And it's it's very average deer hunting. It's got a pretty good number of deer, but doesn't have very many big deer. And they cut it over really hard uh, when I got it. The, the people that had it let it go because they, they, they cut too much timber off of it. And um, so I've just been kind of managing it and growing it, place to take my kids hunting and close to the house. I mean, I'd get on a four-wheeler and drive back there, just kind of cool. And uh, so this year in July, I started taking pictures of a big deer and uh, in velvet 10 point with a kicker off of one of his g2s and i've been following that deer around from july through the season and i finally shot him on december the 19th and i didn't make a good shot and uh what happened is i'm hunting in the stand where i've shot deer out of before and it's a little ditch and when the deer step up out of the ditch they always stop they always come up out of the ditch and stop and i have this theory that i've proven very successful for me if i don't have to stop a deer i never do because if i can shoot a deer without him knowing i'm there he almost never runs off full speed and matter of fact the large majority of them will run 50 60 yards and stop and look back like what just happened and if they're vitally hit that does them in once they stop they can't get back going so i've I've been very successful the last seven or eight years. Most of the deer I've shot with a bow haven't gone more than 100 yards, and it's attributed to the fact that I'm shooting them, you know, without them knowing. When you give them that man and they stop and then you shoot them, you're confirming to them that whatever startled them was real, and they're going to run as hard as they can until they're dead, right. which, you know, in in the South can be a very daunting proposition if they run the wrong direction very hard. So, you know, that, 
you know, with that with that in mind, this deer's coming, and I grunted into me, and he's coming looking for the grunt. And I shot a deer last year in December, almost the same day, same time, same stand, not as big of a deer, but uh, same deal. Walking through the same thicket, grunted at him, turned, came right to me, and he stepped up out of the ditch, stopped, looked around, I shot him, ran 60 yards dead. This deer, I, you know, he stepped up out of the ditch, and I'm waiting on him, and I put it on his shoulder, and I proceed to go through my shot progression, and he just keeps walking. So he stepped right through my peep, and I shot him right through the middle of the guts, like right through oh. the middle of his body. And, you know, again, I, I've, I've had a lot of conversations about this story and about this hunt. I, You know, if I had to do it again, I would have made sure he stopped. I, either, either I would have consciously watched him or I would have stopped him. But, you know, it's I've had a couple friends even tell me this, and I've had so much success doing things my way that I just go into a – I just go into a mode where I'm not really, I don't think about a lot of things other than what I'm supposed to do. And I was just doing what I always do. And it's been very successful for me. And in this situation, it, there's a, you know, a small part of it backfired on me. But anyway, back to the story, I shot him. And again, to my point, he ran 50 yards and stood there behind me. And I couldn't get another arrow in him. He was standing in some thicket and I could see the hole, you know, in the back of his rib cage and, he stood there for a little while, and I watched him walk straight away from me about 100 yards till I couldn't see him anymore. And I, it was uh, it was 7.30 in the morning. And luckily and fortunately for me, he walked into the wind, and he walked exactly the opposite direction of how I had to leave. So as soon as he got out of there, I just climbed down and left. And I actually went to work. I left and went to work for the day. And I came back eight hours later with a dog. A friend of mine has dog. He's been training blood dogs for a long time, and he had has two of them. And he's thinking, well, it's a gut shot deer. We may have to bay it, so he puts both of them on it. These dogs, if you've ever dealt with blood dogs, there's different types of dogs. Some of them hunt in circles, where they're winding the trail the whole time, and other dogs hunt like a bloodhound hunts right on the trail. They right. literally straddle the blood and follow it. So these dogs are winding dogs, and they. You know, they, they take off down the trail, and the next thing I know, they're like 900 yards north of us, and I'm, like, following blood the other direction. And I'm like, dude, something's up here. I was like, I'm, you know, I'm talking to him on his cell phone. I'm like, I'm following blood south, and your dogs are 900 yards north. Something's not right, you know. And so we bring them back and put them back on the blood, and they run up a big cutover and get in a fight with a coon, and, you know, one thing leads to another, and I'm I'm just I'm just disgusted, man. It's just it's I'm like this is terrible, and so it's like 8:30 at night. I get back to the house, and my buddy that hunts with me, he's following along with what's going on. He hunts on the property, and he's wanting to know if I found the deer. He's at a company Christmas party, and he's talking to a guy and telling him what's going on, giving him the play by play. This guy says, "I know a guy that's got a dog. This dog's an ace, no doubt about it." And so my phone rings. This guy's like, hey, man, I heard your story. And I, I videoed the whole hunt. So I had screenshots of the hole in the deer, screenshots of the shot, everything. He's like, I saw the pictures. So I heard your story. He said, I believe my, my dog finds your deer. And I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I just I tell him the whole story. He's like, yeah, it's, it's all good, man. He's like, it, it ain't a big deal. My dog will find him. I'm like, he's just as calm and collective as he can be. So... <laughs> 
I'm like, all right, well, I can meet you in the morning. He's like, no, I'm coming over there now. I'm like, it's nine o'clock at night, you know, like a Tuesday. And I'm like, oh God, you know, what's fixing to happen here? So I'm like, okay, whatever. What do I got to lose? I don't have to go anywhere. It's right here at my house. We'll just go back there and see what happens. Right. So (laughs) this guy pulls up and I'm, I'm, I shit you not. He pulls up and this bloodhound is sitting in the passenger seat like a human. (laughs) <laughs> he's just like looking around i'm like this is fun. i'm like this is just nuts and this is this big deer that i've been i've been hunting all year and i'm you know obviously beat up about the whole thing so we go in there this dog trails this deer 3.79 miles and it's all in a big loop the deer does go south and goes all the way up into my property into a big cutover makes a huge loop and comes right back to where the other guy's dogs went which is a pond on the neighbor's property. At two o'clock in the morning, we're standing on the bank of a pond, and there's blood on the at the edge of the water. The dogs going out there swimming in the pond, coming back, swimming in the pond, coming back. And uh, <laughs> you know, we can't see nothing. It's kind of fog on top of the water, and he's like, "The I think the deer's in the pond, but you know, come back tomorrow morning and see if you can find him." Was well, that was December the nineteenth. And I finally found him. He floated up in the pond on Christmas Eve. Wow. I, I went, um, I went, I was actually going into work for a little while Christmas Eve. And I went by the pond that morning. And uh, I actually flew my drone over it. And I could see him floating not far from where he went in the pond. But as it happened, the end of the pond he went into is where they dug it out to kind of improve the property. And it's real deep right there. And, uh, you know, uh, I've, because of this i've learned and researched and heard from a million different people with different opinions about how long it takes a deer to float and all this kind of stuff and i heard everything from three hours to a week and all this kind of stuff but long story short uh the cold water i guess preserved him long enough that he, he didn't bloat to, which is what's required for him to float and when i found him the only thing sticking up was just a small patch of his his hind quarter you know his head was still down wow um and uh, I don't remember what we were talking about before. <laughs> Your wife asked you a question. Oh, so yeah, so that, that, okay, all right, all right, back on track. Uh, yeah. You told me to interject a story. There he you did. Yeah. <laughs> so um, all that went. So as you can imagine, the Wheeler House was uh, the Wheeler House was pretty animated throughout this whole thing because we're getting ready for Christmas and. I now have a new friend in the neighbor because I had to call him to go track the deer and all this kind of stuff. And he's had pictures of the deer and he's all invested. So, you know, long story short, it's a whole lot going on. Well, we go to Gatlinburg for a family Christmas vacation the week after Christmas, which by the way, don't let your wife do that. It's terrible. Um, Bad time of the year. and, And there's a lot of people in Gatlinburg that time of the year. Um, so we get home and I'm like, I'm going hunting. She's like, you've already killed three deer this year. You got to figure out how to mount all of them. And what are you going hunting for? I was like, because it's hunting season. (laughs) I got tags left to fill. I haven't even hunted in Mississippi. I hunted one day in Mississippi in October, late October. I I say one day, I hunted one evening and and one full day on our family place. And I was like, I, I killed a deer in Missouri and Kansas. and, And then this deer, I just, I hunted only him basically from the first part of November when I got back from the Midwest, I guess middle of November, all the way till Christmas. 
I hadn't even hunted Mississippi. I'm like, I got three deer I can kill in Mississippi. You know, I, it's hunting season. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, is your wife of a hunting culture background, or did she has she been exposed to it long enough to know better and ask that question? Yeah. yeah. She, grew up, she grew up right yeah. down the road from me, and um, you know, she's got she didn't have any brothers, but her dad hunted, and they live. I, I hunt on that property too. They have. They live on um some property there outside of town and and so yeah she knows I mean it's, she just <laughs> I, I don't know like I said I think it was a rhetorical kind of a smart question oh, but, it definitely but, was but she got an answer yeah <laughs> you went hunt <laughs> what what are the uh, what are the bag limits like we I don't ever know if ever what are the bag okay. limits in Mississippi and Louisiana Mississippi is three bucks and five does and there is some there's some rules about how many of those does you can kill with a bow as opposed to a rifle, but uh, oh, I, mean, I honestly don't I don't know because I think you can kill three does with your rifle and you can kill two more with a bow or something like okay. that. But, I mean, I don't ever shoot that many does, and I don't hunt with a rifle, so I, I, I don't pay attention to it. But um, So it's three bucks, five does, and then Louisiana is different. Louisiana is – I'm going to have to lie to you. I know it's different per area. Like, so there's units in Louisiana. So like in my unit, which is unit four, you can kill three deer and you can't kill more than two of one kind. So you can kill two bucks and one doe or two does and one buck, but, but you can kill more deer than that. I think the total limit is, uh, two bucks and four does, I think statewide, but in certain units, you can only, feel so much of that bag limit if you're in so i had up until this year i had property in unit six which was um on the mississippi river and my house is not actually on the river it's in uh, about 20 miles off the river basin and i think the way maybe you can kill three bucks because i think i could kill two at my house and one on that six property if i wanted to so i you have to cross check me on that but it's a little bit more convoluted in Louisiana, but it's something like two or three bucks and four or five does in both states. Okay. That's pretty decent. Yeah. I mean, I, I tell people, especially the people I hunt with in the Midwest that, you know, they, they get two tags in Missouri and one in Kansas, one in Nebraska. And I'm like, man, I live 15 miles from the state line and I could kill six bucks and 10 does if I wanted to. Between the two states. <laughs> right. If I had the opportunity and I was just so inclined, you know, so again, that's what makes living here so great. <laughs> right. Yeah, your, your season's pretty much never over. <laughs> for the no, most it's part. not. No, it's not. So. Well, okay, so I'm lost here, man. Fill, fill me in the gap. 10 deer, liberal season, biggest deer in the south. Why don't we hear more about the Mississippi River Valley? Well, in my opinion, it's because the large majority of it is sewn up in big, high-dollar properties. Okay. And it's just not accessible to very many people. There's very few public lands in that in that Delta Basin area, and there's a whole bunch of these. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of these. They're like hunting clubs, but they're LLCs. The members actually own it, and, and, okay. and it's all typically wealthy people. You know, so they'll have a big lodge, and there'll be a dozen of them, and they'll own three thousand acres, and, oh. and they have undivided. They all have undivided interest 
and they all own the property. Gotcha. Um, and there's a lot of that. And it's just, you know, I don't really know how much of that is the right answer. I, I know it has to play a part in it because I've lived here my whole life and I've been fortunate enough to hunt a lot of those places. And I was actually a member of a club on the, on the river for a long time. And, and, uh, but all of that is through association. If I were an outsider, unless I had a lot of money, it, it's hard to get in on those properties because they are sewed it. up and, yeah, I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I guess i'm about to start frequenting the area <laughs> i know there, there's a few places uh more more northern like up around jackson and right mid to northern where there is some public ground um on the river uh and there's some in louisiana on the louisiana side but just by and large it's just it's just a lot of large tracts of private ownership and it's yeah. just it, the word doesn't get out because there's only a handful of outfit type services sure. um, and things like that. Well, and, uh, the the hunting public dudes were up there near Jackson, weren't they? Isn't that where they went this year? Were they Panther Swamp or something? I think I think maybe. I, I don't want to put a name on it and, and misspeak, but I, I I know they went up there in, in, in Mississippi, and I felt like they were hunting on some piece of public down there on on the Mississippi River. I I, I could be wrong, but. Um, I mean, they they got on some decent deer, so it, it's it's funny because yeah. you and I've been talking about doing this for a while, and I was supposed to come to Louisiana and 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 do this one with you, and then that trip got canceled, and so then the hunting public goes out there and they they highlight these areas, and it didn't seem like they were running into a whole lot of people. So I'm I'm curious is is the the hunter density because of all that private land are they kind of spread out, or 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 is the public land hit as uh, as bad as probably other places in the South, in your opinion? I, it, it's hard to say because growing up, I, I think that the private thing has something to do with it because culturally speaking, most people that hunt are leasing property or they're members of a hunting lease or they're securing private property. You know, right. there's a stigma, at least growing up for me, there was a stigma around trying to hunt public land. You know, this it's not worth it because there's too many people and it's dangerous and it's just a headache and and all that kind of thing. And we stayed away from it because our time was valuable and we didn't want to waste it dealing with people. I think a lot of that has changed over the years in that, you know, it used to be a lot of public land hunting. And now people have shifted away from it for whatever reasons. And I think hunting is a lot better on public ground in Mississippi these days, just from a number standpoint, at least deer hunting. Turkey hunting is still pretty pretty rough. But um, I think from a local perspective, if we're just talking about the local people, um, you might be onto something there. I think there's probably a really high percentage of committed hunters, guys that really, you know, put some effort and time every year into hunting they're going to have private property either they're leasing it they've got access somehow or they're a member of a, a of a club or something and I, that's probably a big part of it yeah what well, that's interesting so let, let's kind of break into how you go about hunting um i don't imagine there's a, a fair amount of topography in your area am i am i correct uh by topography you mean land changes right there's not a whole lot of elevation changes you don't have a whole lot of ridges and probably the ridges you have are relatively subtle compared to most other parts of the country right well when you hunt in the river bottom there's not but i don't hunt in the river bottom that much so yeah there's actually a lot of hills and hollows where i hunt um 
you know, matter of fact, I mean, the food plot I was hunting in this afternoon is basically in a bowl of three really high ridges and uh, diving off into a big creek that's just a gully and a huge mountain of a ridge up the other side. So, yeah, I mean, um, when you get away from the river bottom, there is a lot of topography, a whole lot, and not a lot of agriculture, you know, maybe cow pasture, but but not a lot of flat uh, ground to be found. So, yeah, we... You know, we hunt in the woods. Like I mentioned about the gun hunting, I don't, I don't, you know, where I'm hunting, most of the spots I'm hunting, you know, I mean, yeah, I miss opportunities on deer that I could have shot with a gun, the one this morning being a prime example. But um, for the most part, if I hunt hard enough, I'm in spots where deer are funneling within bow range most of the time if I'm if I'm successful. Well, so let's break that down. How, how, do, you, how do you go about breaking a uh, apart the areas that you hunt what what would you how would you define your your deer hunting tactics well first of all um, i don't hunt a lot i'm not a feed hunter in terms of if i find a feed tree don't get me wrong i don't choose to not hunt it it's not that i won't sit over a food plot i sat over a food plot this afternoon for a different reason but nevertheless it's a food source um, I'm more of the guy that I, I'm, I'm a travel hunter. I try to hunt deer in, in route from somewhere to somewhere else. Um, a lot of that reason is because I am a bow hunter and I find it a whole lot easier to get in bow range and also to execute a shot on a deer, specifically a, a mature deer, whether that be a doe or a buck, um, on a deer that's passing through as opposed to a deer that's feeding. A deer that's feeding is far more alert in most cases than a deer that's just passing through. So that's kind of the reason, um, the, the why, the how it's, you know, a lot of it is, is learned behavior. I'm an, I'm an observatory. Uh, it's not the right word. I'm observative type of hunter. I spend a lot of time. I spend a lot of hunts observing, sitting in places where I don't necessarily expect to get a shot with a bow, but I expect to learn where I'm going to get a shot with a bow, you know, as much as I will be the first to tell you the difficulty of hunting in big woods is that the deer can go anywhere. You can still find patterns. You can find, you know, uh, preferred travel. You can find saddles and just, I, I guess, like anything, a, a deer that's not molested and not spooked or anything is typically going to take the past of the path of least resistance so when you're when i'm looking at something i can pretty much tell uh, or make a an educated guess that this deer's probably not going there not that he can't but he's probably not going to like why would he when he can go right over there and that's a lot easier um now um what that looks like i, I guess it just varies um if i'm looking at a creek crossing for example i'm looking for a low sloping area because the deer can climb the side of a mountain. I mean, we've all seen that. Oh, yeah. We've all seen them climb things that we would think a hoofed animal couldn't climb. But a deer that's just passing along, traveling, and not running from you or not running injured or anything like that, if you watch them, they'll wander along the side of a creek until they find somewhere easy to step down and back up. And so I'm going to focus my attention on those kind of areas so that and, – and don't get me wrong. I've sat those kind of areas many a times where – I've, I've had to put in quite a bit of time for it to come to fruition 
In other words, the deer do what I think that they shouldn't do many times, but eventually <laughs> it pays off, you know. Um, and and I guess that, that, that lends itself to another thing is, is patience. I think that's one of the the most difficult things to figure out with deer hunting, especially, you, you, you know, you mentioned people that are listening that are new to hunting and they're very anxious to have some success, whether that be simply just to get deer in bow range or to actually get a shot at a deer. Um, they're very anxious and they're not very patient and they're worried a lot about, well, that might, you know, I saw that buck and he crossed on a trail that I didn't expect him to. That's not what I thought I scouted. And, you know, that was my shot. I'm not going to get another shot. I should have been over there. And then they start moving around. They start doing things differently than their instincts told them to do. And the truth of it is, I think that the biggest mistake that almost every one of us make as a deer hunter, no matter how experienced or how new to the game that we are, is subconsciously, even in the smallest decisions, we base our logic on how we view the world. When we're in the woods, when we're observing, and when we're trying to decide how to hunt, where to hunt, when to hunt, etc., we put a human thought process, a human, a human cognitive thought process, we put that on the deer. But you have to step back and realize that a deer is not human. And just because you see things one way or how things should happen one way in your mind, you, you can't think the way a deer does, and a deer certainly doesn't think the way you do. So you have to be patient and rely on, I know I'm in the right spot, and I know I didn't spook that deer, and I know they're coming through here, and I just got to pick the right days and put in my time. And I promise when that happens, it's more fulfilling that way too. Maybe I didn't answer your question really. No, great. I think you, you killed it. Actually, no, I, I, that that that's amazing. I think, you know, Chase and I have been grappling with how to answer all these questions that people have been sending us here recently, and it's it's, it's there's no like combination. There's there's no there's no there's no secret sauce. No, there's not. No, it, it, it's a lot of trial and error, and and in in for the guys that are listening to this, I mean, it, it's a lot of trial and error, and a lot of times you're the guy making the mistake, overthinking it. I'm, I'm guilty of that. Today, on the way home today, uh, Chase is like, dude, why haven't you been hunting next spot? If you, <laughs> It's the rut. You hunt the does. I'm like, God, freaking, what? what? Why? Like, why did, I, why did I fall into that habit? I mean, it happens. You, you get to overthinking it. You, it's easy to do, and I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Quit trying to think like a deer and just, you're, you're almost just hunting odds really it's a statistical game for yeah. sure and i think one of the you, you know you mentioned that that you guys have been kind of throwing around how to answer some of these questions and i get this question a lot i mean you, you mentioned we met at a, at a show and at these trade shows you get a lot of questions yeah. from a lot of hunters and you know the truth of it is it's hard to answer the question because if i took you to the property i hunted this afternoon and we walked around. I didn't say a word. I just kind of showed you where the property lines are and, you know, just some of the features. You're going to assess that based off of your prior experience, which is zero on that property. And just because you hunted somewhere that looks similar to this and this is how the deer acted on that property does not mean that that's how they're going to act on this property. Right. And so, you know, and that, that goes for public or private. You know, I I would venture to guess that people that are serious hunters and hunt a lot, 
they hunt the same pieces of public a lot. And so the same thing applies. You, you you can't answer that question for somebody really well because you don't you don't have the experience and knowledge of their of their property. You can tell them how to try to be a better hunter, but I can't tell you you know, you got three ridge lines and two creek bottoms and three food plots and you know, where where should I expect the deer to bed based off of this map? I don't know. Right. You know, I, I don't I don't know what your neighbors do. I don't know what's over the next hill, but you do, or you should if you spend enough time. Right. And you know, there's some basic principles that apply. Go back to it. I you know, I enjoy hunting. And kind of goes back to that thing my wife asked me and she asked, you know, the answer was kind of the smart answer was, Hey, it's hunting season. Right. But um the rest of that answer is I like I just enjoy hunting and there are times that I go hunting with very little expectation of killing anything. I've got something else on my mind. I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to make ends of, of this sign that I saw or these pictures that I took that kind of took me by surprise that, you know, the last time I hunted, the deer did something I wasn't expecting. And I'm, you know, given the conditions, I expect a similar kind of movement. So I want to see if they do it again, knowing that if they do it again, I'm not going to get a shot at them. But that tells me, hey, I need to move this stand or I need to be hunting, you know, in a different place on a different wind. You know, all of those kind of things. And I, I really go back to observation is the best tool that you can use. The problem with that is it plays back into the patience game. Yeah. Because it's hard because, you know, most of us have jobs and, and families and our hunting time is limited and we get in a rut where we think we have to maximize every opportunity. And, you know, sometimes that, as you highlighted with, with some of your personal experience, sometimes that really plays against us. Yep. Chase, yeah. I'm, I'm curious what your input is on this. Cause you, you spend a lot of time getting to know your properties, probably more so than like quote unquote moving in for the kill. Yeah. I mean, did that not sound like a recording of what I told you yeah. when you were asking those questions, <laughs> yeah. same questions yeah. <laughs> about spending time out on your property, getting to know your property? I was like, we don't know what people's properties look like. We don't know if they have the food. We don't know if they have the bedding. Yep. There's a lot of questions that uh, we don't know. And like I said, we've never been on that property. We don't know how much pressure it gets. We know none of that. <laughs> right. So, like you said, it just goes to, okay, these are some basic principles like playing the wind and setting up. Um, like I say, I do the same thing. I do a lot of observation hunts where I have no expectation uh, of killing something. And sometimes those turn into kill hunts. I mean, just like anything else. Yeah. But I feel like you, you've got to have a you – know, you need to get a good pulse on the property that you're at. And spend your spend the time because that's what most people don't want to hear is like you've just got to spend the time there, <laughs> and once once you put that time in, things start coming together. You'll find that your success will not just be every now and then. It'll be just like on a year in and year out basis of you're just having more success over and over again. Um, and I, like I said, everything you just said, I, I say amen. <laughs> well, and it, and it, it's ever changing. And I, I'll give you a good example. I, the property I was hunting today, um, I wasn't hunting on the stand, but um, the last two years, my, my parents bought this place five years ago, and it's it's first of all it was select cut, so there's still a lot of big oaks, but a lot of underbrush, and there's about 
12 to 15 acres of plantation pine on it that's been thinned out and is really open. And in the back corner of it, the pines kind of meet a big hardwood ridge that goes onto the neighbor's property. And at the bottom of that ridge, it's a kind of a flat plateau that's only about 50 yards wide, and it dives off in a really big creek. The other side of that creek is big hardwood. So what it basically creates is a funnel at the end of that ridge where they come off of one ridge and into our pines. And, it, you know, if they don't cross the creek, they basically have to walk across that plateau because it funnels down right there. It's, act, it's perfect. It's a deer hunter's dream, um, assuming that the deer are using that route. Well, the last couple of years, they have been, and we've had a lot of success there. And uh, my dad killed a, a really big nine-point there last year and i have a a lock on that's on the creek bank looking at the at the flat area and up the ridge and the top of the ridge is our property and it's actually the back of a field that has a house in it up there and for the last several years the deer have come through that funnel and across that plateau within 25 to 35 yards of my stand and cut across well, for some reason, this year, they're not doing that. They still come through the funnel, but as soon as they come through it, they go straight up the side of that ridge. Now, why? You know, I, I, I've i hunted it now. I had I, I hunted it in October, and I had a really nice eight-point do exactly what he was supposed to do, and I passed him up, and don't ask me why. I don't know why, but I did. <laughs> um, I, well, the reason why is because I couldn't get him on video, and at that time, I was still trying to fulfill some media obligations, so I decided not to shoot him off camera. But still, I don't know why I did that. Um, <laughs> he uh, he did in October, and I had a camera there, and I was taking a lot of pictures. And I thought, well, when the rut comes, this place is going to be hot. All I got to do is, you know, hunt it on the right days with the right wind. They're going to be funneling through there. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna get a shot at a good deer coming through there looking for a doe or following a doe, and. I hadn't really been on the property much until the holidays. And I can tell you over the last three weeks, I've only had a handful of deer come through that little, they, you know, they, they hit me at about 50 yards when they come through that funnel and they go straight up the side of that ridge. So, you know, I, why does that, you know, this is a property that I know well and what I, I still haven't figured out what caused that to change that way. Um, I don't know if, we haven't done anything so i don't know what we anything we could have done in terms of changing anything to to cause that but uh again i guess to tie that back in it's it's you know i've figured it out now and i've got a situation now where i'm running out of time but i mean i'll i'll i feel hopeful that i can kill them but the only way is because i've sat there and observed it so many times and I think to a lot of people what they would have done to further tie this in, what they would have done after the first couple of hunts is they would have tried to move in. And I don't think that's the right thing to do in that situation. And what I did was I just sat back for a longer period of time and I figured out where they were going. And now I'm hunting where they're going instead of trying to crowd that funnel and blow it all up one way that the observation thing has worked for me and it, it hasn't paid off for me in terms of killing a deer this year but um those kind of things have worked in the past and you know i guess to kind of tie it in a little bit to a more uh big picture for me just some, some of my background i do hunt a lot of 
private stuff, and I hunt a lot of set stands. But I grew up hunting mobile. Now, that was before the saddle thing. I've never, you know, I've never done that. I live across the street from Warren Womack, so I get a <laughs> lesson in saddle hunting at the mailbox on occasion. But um, you're, you're surrounded by celebrities. I mean, everywhere you go, you're sur- surrounded by them. <laughs> yeah. So I, if I ever want, if I ever wanted to do it, I got the guy to do it to show me. But uh, oh, he yeah. has shown me. He hooked it up to his pole on his on his patio one day and got me to get in it and show me all about it. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, we hunted climbing stands, obviously, uh, in college and stuff. I hunted a lot of WMAs because I was off at college and I didn't have access to any land, you know, so we hunted public ground. And, but I did the same thing there, too, you know, just like what you were talking about, Chase. I mean, I would I would go in with a climber, and I would sit in a place that I knew I was sitting there hoping to see a deer far away so that I could be more educated on how to move in on that deer. And like you said, from time to time, it pays off and you get a deer in bow range. But, you know, I would, you know, know that I'm going in here trying to figure it out. Um, And so, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I tell Walter that all the time. I keep going back to be like, get where you can see. Get where you can Mm -hmm. see. You're not seeing deer. Get where you can see. Then after you get those observations in, you can move in and make that move. Um, as opposed to just going in thick all the time and not having any success. And, it, I mean, it paid off for him earlier this year. Sure His did. observation hunt turned into a kill hunt. Yep. So I, I'm constantly just harping on that. I'm like, okay, well, if you don't know what they're doing, then get back to where you can kind right. of figure out where they are. Stack the odds that way. I say we had a very interesting question on the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast that kind of paralleled this a little bit. Uh, so I'll give you the answer that we had to that. I had a guy – can't remember which guest it was but it was actually a very interesting conversation so he he posed a question to us to myself and kyler the 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 other host and he said so if i told you two scenarios all three of us are going to go to a piece of public ground we've got three days to hunt none of us have ever hunted there and you know, the winner gets a prize. You know, we have a pool of money or something. Hypothetically, and this this is a conversation based off of tactics. You know, that's what we're talking about. And so he says, okay, the first scenario is the first person to kill a legal deer. A legal deer wins. The second scenario is the person that kills the biggest buck wins. So what would you do? So my response to that was... The first legal deer, I would go into an area. I would try to be as as the least bit intrusive as I could in this scenario, and I would hunt right over the top of the absolute freshest sign I could find. In other words, I would go until I found the freshest sign, and I would stop and not go a step further, and I would hunt there until I killed what was frequenting that area. Mm-hmm. If I'm trying to kill a big deer, I would spend half a day – learning an area, identifying that there's got to be a mature buck in here, and then I'd spend a day and a half trying to figure him out with observation, and hopefully I could do that and have a day to hunt him with what I've learned. So, Boy, that's, my that's, a that? good, that's, that's insightful. That's really insightful. But I, 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 one thing I've, I've said in contradiction to people 
uh, in the past that, you know, you hear a lot of mobile hunters talk a lot about scouting. And scouting is very important, obviously. It's a big part of what we do as deer hunters. But if you're trying to kill big deer, intrusion is a big problem, a really big problem. And, you know, my rebuttal to some of that is if you get down in the middle of the day and you go walk all over a piece of property trying to find the hottest feed tree until you find it, well, I, I don't have any doubt that a doe or a spike or a young buck or a whole harem of does might not come to that feed tree. But unless that big deer was somewhere, nowhere to be found, you're probably not killing him because you just walked all over his, right. his home. And he's not big for no reason. You know, I, I've i gotten to a place where my preferred style of hunting is I shoot big deer. That's what, that's what I'm hunting for. I don't, you know, I don't. I don't uh, have any – I'm not one of these people that is uh, – what am I trying to say? Like I don't think negatively of people that shoot whatever they want. It's not – it's just, again, it goes back to the bow. I just hunt the way I want to hunt. That's how I want to hunt. Um, so I let my kids shoot the does for meat and all that, and I, and I hunt for big deer. And, and I think the one thing that I've learned in that, aside from all of these other tactics and, and things, is – you can't kill big deer unless you hunt them a certain way because they're very, they're very smart and they're very big for a reason. Now, with that being said, it's, I think it's different from what most people think. And what I mean by that is a big deer, once he gets on his feet is easier to kill than a doe because he doesn't pay that much attention to what's going on. He's the man of the woods. And he's got a reason for being up on his feet, and he's going about that reason, whether that's following a doe or looking for a doe or whatever. They're just not as wary in the moment. The difference is they only do that a couple of times the whole season, whereas a doe walks around all the time, and every step she takes, she's, you know, she's she's on alert when she has no reason to be on alert, you know. So that that's been my experience, and so playing that into the the idea of how you're going to go about on that hunt is I have stands that I don't hunt, but one or two times a year because I only hunt them on certain days with very certain conditions because I'm only there to kill a certain, probably a deer, but you know, at least a certain age deer. And so I'm very, very, very particular about intrusion. And so that kind of becomes, when you get into the public land and mobile hunting, that gets a little bit gray because how do you hunt that way and not be more intrusive than I want to be? You know what I'm saying? Right. That makes sense. So. So how you do know, you how know. do you how do you walk that line? I don't scout during the season. Gotcha. Even I mean, on public. Well, this conversation, I don't really hunt public anymore. That's true. That's true. Um, Fair enough. So, but in, in the, in the past, you know, I guess you kind of go back to the old saying of, you know, you, you control the controllable or, you know, you only, you can only control what you can control kind of thing. Right. And when it came to that, I would identify certain areas on public where I felt like there were big deer and 
once I identified them, I just stayed out of them. I, you know, I only hunted them on the right weather and I went straight in, straight out. I just, you know, there, it's, it's an inevitability for you to learn the property. You've got to learn it. But going back to the observation on that kind of place on public, if I had a, if I had the ability to do it, and I, I guess I can give you an example of a WMA in, in Mississippi, I killed a deer that for that point in my career and for that area was a pretty nice deer. He wasn't huge, but he was a nice buck with a bow. And they had a big field that was probably, uh, it was maybe the size of a football field or a little bit bigger. Maybe if you considered an entire field track and sideline and everything and it was down in a big pretty hardwood bottom and i had slipped up to that field to a place where i could see and i had seen several bucks in that field on numerous occasions and so what i did was i waited until i had the right wind and i sat on the other end of the field like three times until i figured out really what they were doing like really what they were doing and it took me three hunts, but I, I figured out how to go in there. I figured out what tree I was going to climb with my binoculars, and I went straight to that tree, and I came straight out. I didn't walk off the field, I mean, further off the field than the tree. I didn't look around. I gathered what I needed to gather from afar, and I stayed completely out of there except for the days that I wanted to hunt it, and it paid off. I eventually got a high pressure, the right wind, the right weather change, and the deer showed up right at dark just like I had watched him do from the other end of the field, and I killed him. So that would be my answer to public. I, I just don't have a lot of recency to the public conversation. I got you. And, and that's fine. There's, there's plenty of people. I would I would surmise that just as many people who hunt public, that for, for listener purposes, we've got equal number that are that are hunting private. So it, it applies to, to, to everybody. And I think, I think to an extent you can apply the same thing regardless because – if it's public, you can recognize that, you know, just about anybody's going to be walking around in there. And, yeah. it, you know, it, you, it, it, it's, it's a pretty easy thing to, to kind of if, – if you're seeing a bunch of boot tracks, you know other people have been in there as well, you know. Yeah, that's just the hard thing is you, you don't know. And, you know, my advice to that and the way – I was fortunate enough that in that scenario and other scenarios, I, I was – been able to find some public pieces over the years where I didn't have to deal with a lot of people, but nevertheless, you know, if I stayed out of a place because I thought there was a big deer in there and I didn't have the right weather or I couldn't hunt on the days when the weather was right and it, and I had to stay out of there a couple of weeks before I could go back in there and hunt him, you know, I don't know. He could right. be dead. He could be, you know, spooked and completely nocturnal, all that. I don't know, but you know, you just got to stick to what you do know in that regard. And another thing that I've, I've carried on this conversation and I've tried to parallel is, you know, when I go to the Midwest, I don't have my own properties. I have, I have some friends that are outfitters. I don't really do guided hunts. Um, these guys do guide hunts, but when I go up there, I'll typically have a couple of farms that they let me have while I'm there. And the last several years, those have been farms that haven't, they were new farms that they didn't, they had just gotten them. And other than them going out there and running some trail cameras throughout the summer, I didn't know anything about them. They didn't have any stands on them. And when I got there, I'm there for a week, and it might as well be a public piece because I've never stepped foot on it. And right. They don't know anything about it. They just picked up the lease. So, you know, I had to go in and, uh, you know, figure it out on my own. And yeah, I killed a, a big deer in Nebraska a year before last 
on the second hunt, which was the first morning uh, of the, which was kind of lucky because it was kind of one of those observations that turned into a kill type thing. I was in a really good spot, but I was cognizant of the fact that I may not be there the whole time because I wasn't real sure. But as it turns out, I was in the exact right spot. Um, and then this past year, I hunted a piece and, and killed a deer. It took me five days to kill him. But um, it was a, a place in Kansas, and it had been tied up in a bank dispute with a family, and it hadn't been hunted for six years. And there were no stands on it. And uh, it was one of those deals where I hung, a, I, hung, I hung a stand knowing it was in a spot. Now, Now, granted, let's just disclaim this. When you're hunting in the Midwest during the rut and you're hunting these small blocks of timber, an observation sit is more likely to turn into a kill sit than in the South. Right. So let's just put that out there because it's different. You know, you, you get up in just about any tree on some of these farms and you're in a good spot no matter what because there's not a lot of, um, you know, unless you're on the wrong side of the field or something like that. Um, and in this spot, I hung a stand expecting it to be an observation spot because it was kind of in the middle of a farm where a bunch of draws ran together and I could see into the edge of several different fingers of cut corn. And, um, I, uh, I had to put my will and my patience to the test because I watched a deer that would probably score no lie. He would probably score 190, but I'm going to be safe and say he was a booner. And I saw him three different times that week and he was across a draw and two of those times he actually came into the block of timber i was i watched him come across the field at like 400 yards following a doe and they dipped into the block of timber i was in they just never showed up um i don't know where they went and there were several times that i really debated do i get up and leave here but at the same time i was seeing a lot of deer and on the last day i I ended up killing a 140 inch 10 point there in that spot that I had actually watched that big deer run off the day before. Um, so, um, you know, paralleling that it's some of the same stuff with, with that, with public. So I guess the difference being landscape. Right on. Well, I think, I think I was hoping to hit another topic tonight, but we've kind of ran shy on time and that is layering in the South. You know, I, I, I think that's something that a lot of people from a tactic standpoint could, could utilize. Um, yeah. and, and I well, think I can, hit that, I can hit that really quick if you want me to. Well, let me propose this. Do you want to come back on and make that a dedicated episode? Yeah, we can do that too. That'll be fine. Okay. Why don't you give people, why don't you give people a, a, a teaser going into okay. that and, and we'll, we'll set up a, a date moving forward. Cause one of the things we're going to try and do this year, and we haven't really even announced this much on the show is. We're, we're going to be doing a lot to equip the listener. A lot, we've got all these new guys that are reaching out, and like you, like you very well pointed out, there's not a whole lot we can do to help you break down your property. I mean, we, can, we can give you some basic rules, and we're going to expose people to a lot of scenarios, and, and hopefully when you go out and apply those, you, you, it, you'll find some success, and you'll be able to you know, replicate what we're trying to, to, to tell you. But there's a lot of uh, you know, basic fundamental things that you can implement immediately, and I think one of those is making sure that, you're, that you're, uh, your, your equipment on all levels, from your clothes to the, to the kit, if you're using a saddle system or whatever, that, you, that you're proficient with it. So kind of give everybody kind of a teaser as to, as to um, you know, the, the, the dialogue surrounding layering and, and how it can benefit yep. the Southern Hunter. Well, so um, 
it's been mentioned that I, I work for a company called Scree, which if you haven't heard of Scree, that's S-K-R-E. And we're a, we're a competitor to Sitka First Light QU. It's your performance um, performance hunting wear. And it's a layering system. So, um, you know, what you're looking at is ways to perform with lighter, lesser layers, both warm to cold, wet, and everything in between. So, you know, for kind of the, the, the teaser side of it, the South, in my opinion, is a very interesting parallel to where this stuff was designed and kind of implemented. It started in the West where guys hiked and hunted in the mountains. Well, what do you get with that? You get a lot of changing elements. You know, it might be 60 degrees, and the next day it might be 20 degrees and snowing on that mountain. And then you also, you know, you may be hiking a long ways where you're not going to get cold, but then you're sitting on the top of a mountain glassing for a spot and stalk in freezing temperatures. So you got to have a lot of diversity. Well, I think that it's safe to say that in the South, we have the most diversity of most whitetail regions in the country. Our seasons are far from set in stone. And you look at it right now as a perfect example. It was 27 degrees this morning in southern Mississippi, (laughs) and it'll be 75 on on Thursday. Yep. You know, so that's that's what what we'll talk about on that is, like, how you can have layers that you can apply and, you know, take off, take on, and – not fight the battle of all of what we've traditionally known as hunting clothes that tend to be bulky and hard to layer and and all that kind of stuff so it's just it's a it's a comfort and a performance level that allows you to focus on getting in and out of the woods and doing all the other things that you're trying to do in terms of scouting and, and working and managing property and all that kind of stuff to uh you know just to be more efficient you know i'm i will say this as part of the teaser if you don't learn to be a, a, a proficient hunter, it really doesn't matter what camouflage you're wearing. It really doesn't matter what bow you're shooting. Um, you know, equipment goes as far as to empower you to be a better hunter, but you still have to be a better hunter. You still got to focus on figuring out how to get yourself in bow range or gun range undetected and how, how to be able to, to, to read the woods and read the weather and, and figure all that out. And if, if you do that, then you can pick what works best for you. It really doesn't matter all the other stuff if you're not doing that part right. So um, I guess that's all I got to say on the teaser part of it. But, yeah, that's I think it's a great uh, a thing for you to introduce people to because what I've learned coming from a lifelong, you know, hunter that got dressed up in my dad's old clothes you know then i was a kid that was growing faster than my parents could keep clothes so of course they would go buy the cheapest thing from walmart to keep me warm because i wouldn't be able to wear it the next hunting season anyway (laughs) and you know going from all of that to where i'm at now with with using the performance fabrics and the layering system it makes a huge difference and i'm and and also from the perspective of someone who hunts all over the country, I can tell you that it's, it's as applicable in the South as it is anywhere because we deal with, you know, such a variety of weather that is, uh, I I just think it makes it more applicable for us. I I couldn't agree more. I, I didn't realize that, that there was such a, um, versatility or, 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 or technical component to how you could dress to best suit, uh, 
the you know the conditions you're in until I started really studying how to go out west and the more I studied that the more I realized the benefit that it has here and you're right dude I, I genuinely believe the south is the perfect I, I I'll go so far as to say I think the south especially the southeast is the perfect place to apply a technical layer, layering system because of just what you said tonight's going to be 28 Wednesday here it's or uh, Thursday here it's going to be 75 so yep. it, you know it, there your coveralls would be good for one day but not if you're going too far in and you know cotton kills there's a lot of principles there so I, I'm excited I'm going to shut up before I I cover too much myself but <laughs> I, I'd love to have you come back on the show and, and and let's let's do a dedicated episode to that and and uh, break down what you've learned because you're far more equipped yeah. to discuss it than I am. Yeah, that'll be a that'll be a great conversation. I, uh, it's it's one of those things that, uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of questions about. So I think uh, for those people, it'll be great. And then for people who not taking the time to consider it, I think there's probably a lot about it that you you probably don't realize. Right. That. You know, you have a maybe you have a preconceived notion about it, and you don't really realize what all goes into it. So, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Chase, unless you've got any concluders, uh, I'm gonna wrap this up. Nah, thanks for coming on the show, sharing uh, some of your knowledge with us and the listeners. I enjoyed it. Thank you guys for having me. Lock. Before we let you go, where can people go to find you and your content? Um. So my media company is Life in Focus Media. So you can uh, either find me. My name is spelled L-O-C-K-E, Lock Wheeler, W-H-E-E-L-E-R. So just look for uh, Lock Wheeler on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and you can look for Life and Focus Media or L-I-F Media to find some of that stuff as well. So And then you can also find me on Scree's website, Scree Gear and T3Calls.com. Awesome, Bubba. Hang on one second. I'm going to close this out, but I want to chat with you afterwards. Guys, 2020 is going to be a big year. We're going to cover a lot of information, and uh, my my goal is that between the people you hear, the expertise, and the information that we provide, that everybody's going to have a barn burner of a 2020 season. So stay tuned. Stay tuned to the show. Get ready for what's to come. But most importantly, when you're done with this episode and you've got nothing left to do, get outside, go scout, go fish, go do something and enjoy the great outdoors.